This is Jim McCarty speaking, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Rock is Lit! Before there was Led Zeppelin, before Jimmy Page first bowed his electric guitar or worked his magic on the theremin, there was the Yardbirds, the legendary 1960s British psychedelic blues band that launched the careers of three of rock's greatest guitarists, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page. In this special episode of Rock is Lit, one of the original members of the Yardbirds joins me, and I couldn't be more excited. Drummer and Rock and Roll Hall of Famer Jim McCarty is here. Jim is recognized worldwide for the innovative drumming style he introduced in the 1960s on songs that are now classics, such as For Your Love, Heart Full of Soul, Shapes of Things, The Train Kept a Rolling, You're a Better Man Than I, Over, Under, Sideways, Down, and my personal favorite, Happenings Ten Years Time Ago. Since the end of the Yardbirds in the 60s, Jim has formed a number of successful bands and released three solo albums of his own songs. He is the author of the book, Nobody Told Me, My Life with the Yardbirds, Renaissance and Other Stories, published in 2018, and the 2021 book, She Walks in Beauty, My Quest for the Bigger Picture, both written with Dave Thompson. Rock is Lynn is a podcast about rock novels, and I'd originally contacted Jim to be a guest in the episode celebrating the audiobook release of my rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page, but we were not able to make that happen. Later, after the episode aired, and after I read Jim's book, She Walks in Beauty, inspired by the loss of his beloved wife, Lizzie, and his quest to connect with her following her death, and after Jim and I finally did make contact and nailed down a time to talk, I decided to devote an entire episode to him. During the next hour, we talk about Jim's family and childhood during World War II torn Britain, his music career and experience as a member of the Yardbirds, his interest in and exploration of the paranormal and spirituality, his endearing and enduring relationship with Lizzie, and She Walks in Beauty, the fascinating book that details that relationship, as well as Jim's quest for the bigger picture, as the book's subtitle states. The interview is uncut and only minimally edited. I hope you enjoy the episode. It was an honor and a thrill to spend some time with one of Rock's greatest legends. Ladies and gentlemen, the show starts in three, two, one, go. I have been a fan of the Yardbirds since I was a teenager, so this is an absolute treat for me to welcome Jim McCarty to Rock is Lit. Thank you for joining me. <laughs> oh, great. What can, I, what can I say after that? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I should tell you, I bought Legend of the Yardbirds Volume 1. I've still got it. All this, right. That was the first oh, yes. album. Yes. That, was the, that was the first album I, I got of the Yardbirds. And I was a teenager in the mid-80s when I got it, and I, I had fallen in love with Led Zeppelin and Jimmy Page. So Jimmy was kind of my gateway drug to the Yardbirds. And yes. Yeah, and, and I admit that I got that particular album because it was the only one in the record store that had his picture on the cover, the only Yardbirds <laughs> record. So I was like, oh, I'm getting that one. But of yes. course, my, my repertoire has expanded since then beyond just that one album. Yes. Well, that's what seems to happen. You know, uh, people hear of the Zeppelin, and they're a bit too young to have known the Yardbirds, and they and they trace the history back, and and then they like the Yardbirds. You know, they mm-hmm. go back and they they see the origins of Zeppelin, and yeah, that happens they, a lot. Then they discover yeah. what what an amazing genius band the Yardbirds were. So <laughs> they're your fans. So. <laughs> Jim, when I initially contacted you about coming on the podcast, I, I my initial thought was I just wanted to have a short chat about your memories of working with Jimmy Page and recording and touring with the Yardbirds for the episode of Rock is Lit, celebrating the audiobook release of my novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. But two things happened to change that plan. 
I couldn't reach you and nail down an interview date until that episode had already aired. And then I read your book, She Walks in Beauty. And I was so moved by your efforts to connect with your wife, Lizzie, on a spiritual level after her 2020 passing of cancer and your exploration of your own interest in spirituality and the paranormal that I want to do a whole episode on you. So, you know, we'll be able to widen our discussion and talk about all that stuff. So buckle up. I've got a lot of questions. Oh, okay. Hope you've got some time. Okay. I'll wake up. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah. Cause you're in France. What time is it there? It's uh, just gone nine. nine okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll try to get you out of here by midnight. <laughs> okay. Rock and roll time. Yeah. Yeah. So before we get into the really heavy stuff, let's talk about your background a little bit and trace the development of your interest in the paranormal and music. One thing that struck me in learning about you is that your dad's last name wasn't actually McCarty. He was born a Turner in Canada. So how did you wind up Jim McCarty, born in Liverpool, England, in the midst of World War II? <laughs> well, I, well, that was it. You know, uh, I was I was always McCarty, um, and I never knew otherwise until about uh, probably about 10 years ago, maybe 10, 10 or 20 years ago, I found out my, my dad actually came from uh, Canada. Uh, a bit like Eric Clapton, I think he was the same. His, his father came from Canada. Um, but I didn't know, and it was like hushed up. I knew that my dad was adopted, mm. uh, but it, it turns out he was adopted by uh, someone I thought was my grandmother, was actually my aunt. <laughs> wow. It was your mother's uh, sister? No, sorry, not I mean, my I, aunt. Not I, your mother, his, my, his, his mother's my, sister. His, his aunt. My great aunt. Wow. Uh, and I thought that was, I always thought that was my grandmother until after she, you know, she passed. She passed 30 or 40 years ago, you know. Um, yeah. So, so it, it was a, a revelation in a way because I, I, I was always drawn to, um, for some reason, I was drawn to Toronto. I, I knew some people, musicians in Toronto. And uh, I, I, I liked it there, and I used to go there, and I used to record um, my own stuff. And hmm. I, I, I met a lot of people there, and my wife and I used to go there, and we used to house swap in Toronto, you know, with people. <laughs> <laughs> and little did I know, my, my father was born in the, down in the same street where I recorded. I oh, didn't my goodness. Know that. Wow. <laughs> That's very yeah. odd. He had kind of a, a sad beginning, your dad. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. 
we're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. Yeah, yeah, because uh, his his uh, mother died and uh, his father couldn't look after him. So he was adopted by... Um, but by his mother's sister, who I thought was my grandmother, right, and brought and brought back to England because they were originally from England. But they moved over to Toronto from London. But his mom died when he was only what four days old. Yes, it yeah, was probably it was younger. So sad, yeah, just so sad how that happened. And in growing up, you didn't have a close relationship with him. You weren't able to really talk to him a lot about you know things that were interesting to you because he he was an alcoholic well yeah yeah it was difficult it was hard and 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 him and my mum didn't really get on you know so yeah (laughs) it was a classic background where you had to struggle uh you know to make something of yourself or to get to get away from it all and that's where the music came in okay well before we get to the music an interest in, I guess, for lack of a better word, the paranormal kind of cropped up when you were a little guy. What? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I used to have sort of various experiences and uh, interesting experiences. I always thought, well, I, you know, I must be a bit different from regular people <laughs> because I, I, so I was able to sort of uh, look at myself and look at myself from from behind or something it was quite odd you know I I could watch myself from another standpoint and uh I I, it was a way of escaping from the the um you know the sadness of the the home you know it was was pretty sad um but but I managed to do it (laughs) and uh yeah so I've had some interesting experiences along the way well as you read Yes, yes. So growing up, you you didn't grow up in a particularly religious household. I mean, you were a member of the Church of England and your mom sent you to Sunday school and all that. But as a child, you began to be interested in the idea of death, what happens after death and the supernatural. You liked ghost stories. You know, my theory is, and correct me if I'm wrong, that maybe that got sparked from the fact that you're growing up in in post World War II England and you and your friends are playing on bomb sites, so oh oh yes yes yeah I, I, someone else said that to me as well you know may, maybe uh, maybe I wasn't aware of it but maybe there were a lot of you know spirits around or no I never thought of it like that because it was just we were just kids yeah you know playing football or you know running down these uh, these old like these old cellars that were still there, you know, but maybe maybe there were spirits hanging around. I've never, I've never really thought about it too much. Well, even if it's not that, just, you know, kind of the, the, the aura of death and destruction that took place in that place at that time, it's not something that I can relate to here in the United States. We've not had that kind of attack the way you all did. So we yeah. don't have that kind of history unless we go back to the Civil War, and yeah. and that you know that's this is recent history for you. I, I remember meeting a local uh, relatively recently, you know, probably um, maybe forty years ago. It's still a long time, and uh, and they said, "Oh, I remember the the pub that was at the bottom of where you lived, at the bottom of your road, and it was completely destroyed one night, you know, and it was full yeah. up. Sat- it was a Saturday night." And it was bombed. And uh, as a kid, we used to play it down in the cellar, you know, because it was just a ruin. Yeah. <laughs> so amazing. That's quite a history. Okay, so your interest in the paranormal was 
somewhat ignited as a young kid. Fast forward a few years and you discover what would become another passion, music, namely rock and roll. You even started playing drums or rather this snare drum in the Boys Brigade. Now, what exactly is the Boys Brigade? Well, well, it was uh, like a military organization, semi-military, where you wore a uniform and you marched and you, you know, you marched in step and, and you had a band and you marched down the street and then you went into the church or whatever. It was, it was uh, associated with the church. Uh, and then uh, I used to love playing the snare drum. And I'd play something on the drum and then all the other drummers have to play the same. It was really exciting. <laughs> Do you know where that interest came from with the drums? You didn't grow up in a musical family. I mean, you, you had a grandmother who played piano, but other than that, you didn't have a lot of music in the family. No, I know. I think my, my dad would have liked to have been a bit of a singer. But really? he was, I think he was a repressed repressed performer i think he did, apparently he did used to sing at one point mm. but i not when i really knew him so i didn't know that side of him but um maybe that's where i got it from what drew you to the drums particularly i don't know i i just loved it i, I loved uh there was something about it that's very exciting all okay. sorts of all sorts of drums, you know, whether it was jazz or rock and roll or African drumming or right. Okay, so now you've got your very first band, the Strollers, and they became the Country Gentlemen, and they were formed <laughs> with your school friends. Yes. The the thing that struck me when I when I read that part of the book is you you're just really beginning to get into music. You're really beginning to start drumming and be in bands. That's precisely when your father died. He died December the 6th, 1960, and you're 16 yes. years old. Yeah. How, how did that change your life, or how, how did you handle that? Uh, That's young. Yeah. Well, it was quite radical, but uh, I must say it was a bit of a relief mm-hmm. because uh, the, then the arguing stopped, and we, um, my, my mother came into some, some money through the family and uh, decided to move. We decided to move um, actually across the river into another county. And it was uh, like a, a, re- a new life, you know, yeah. a rebirth, if you will. And uh, it, it was quite, it was quite a relief after all that uh, arguing and atmosphere and, right. and shouting and all that stuff. <laughs> kind of like he's at peace now finally and you can you can move on speaking yeah. of moving on you moved on to the Yardbirds and and I just want to point out everybody of course we all know that the Yardbirds boast three legendary guitarists Eric Clapton Jeff Peck and Jeff Beck and my man Jimmy Page in that order but Eric wasn't the first lead guitarist in the band a guy named Tony Top Topham was the first lead guitarist so how did the band form uh, well, we were all we were all friends hanging out in a in a pub in um, in a place called Kingston, which was near near where I lived in Surrey, right down by the river. Uh, and uh, a, lot, a lot of art students used to hang around in there, uh, like Bohemian, as we mm-hmm. called them. The other guys were all from art college, apart from me and Paul, Paul Samuel Smith, and we went to the grammar school. We, we'd been mates from you know, way back since we were about 15. And we're still friends, actually, because <laughs> oh, he, really? he lives in France as well. There were a lot of art students that took to music because it wasn't a very, you know, it wasn't a very hard, hard sort of life in, in an art school. I don't think you, you did exams and you just studied <laughs> art. And... <laughs> <laughs> nice. So they were playing music, including Clapton, of course. Mm. Um but uh, Chris Dreyer and Keith Keith Ralph, the singer, uh, and Chris was the uh, rhythm player, rhythm guitarist, and Topham, uh, that they all went to Kingston Art School, and um, uh, Keith Ralph and Paul Samuel Smith actually formed a band first, and they were called the Metropolis Blues Quartet. A strange <laughs> name, but they played sort of country blues, and I'd I'd never seen Keith before. I, I thought Keith was great, you know, mm. he was this 
a blonde-haired guy playing harmonica. And then we finally all teamed up because they, they wanted to be more rocky and they liked my, my sort of rock and roll playing. And we all teamed up one night and we formed the Yardbirds. Well, why did Top leave? Well, Top left because he was the youngest of all of the group and his <clears throat> father was an artist and Top was quite a good artist and he was the, he was the, in the middle of studying art and uh, his father didn't want him to be a musician. He wanted him to become an artist. So uh, he put the pressure on him and uh, he didn't want him to hang out playing all night clubs with <laughs> us lot, you know. Being, being with you degenerate rock star people. <laughs> yeah, so so uh, he really had to let, uh, leave, which was a bit unfortunate, you know, for him. But um, enter, enter Eric Clapton. Yeah, so, the, you know, the next one in line was, was, was Eric, and uh, Chris and, Chris and uh, Keith knew him, and he had a bit of a reputation, and he, he came in for the audition, and well, we thought, oh, this guy's pretty good. <laughs> okay, but more more first impressions of Eric Clapton. What, what? How did he strike you? Besides just being a good guitar player. Uh, well, he, yes, he was good. But he was very keen. He was very enthusiastic on what he and he was very um, he was very close conscious. You know, <laughs> he was very uh, fashion conscious. He was very smart. Mm-hmm. And uh, actually, I thought he was a, a bit of a big head when he when I when I, <laughs> I thought he's a, you know he's a bit full of himself. I don't know about this guy, but 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 we you know we 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 got to we got to know each other. We got to become friends, and uh, it, you know he worked out pretty well. He worked out pretty well. Yeah, this is 1963, and I love that. Keith Ralph came up with the name of the band, didn't he? From Jack Kerouac's On the Road, The Yardbirds. Yeah, I love that because yeah. I love that book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was it. And uh, it was quite fascinating because the, you know, I didn't know. I'd never heard of The Yardbirds, really. You know, I, I didn't know the book. I, I got to learn that Yardbirds used to hang out in the rail yards and they used to spend their life traveling on the, on the steam trains across the States. And, you know, it was quite quite a romantic idea but it was quite different from us mm-hmm. <laughs> you know we were just kids from the suburbs of London we didn't have to travel around <laughs> it was all very romantic well things happened pretty quickly didn't they once you guys once you got Eric in and everything is gelling you get a manager things begin to come together pretty quickly after that yeah, I think the thing that did it was we took over from the Rolling Stones at, at the, the Crow Daddy Club yeah, in, in Richmond, which was local to us, and uh, that was our that was our break really. And we thought, oh, how's it going to be, you know, playing for the Stones? But it, but it was all right. It was good, and, and uh, they they took to us, and it went it went it went quick. We started to gain a lot of popularity. All right, so your breakthrough really occurred when you recorded For Your Love, and that became a commercial hit, topping the charts in Canada and the UK. But Eric Clapton left the group the day before the single was released, and I'm betting he was kicking himself until he got creamed together because it did so well. But I I read that he didn't like the song because it wasn't bluesy enough for him. Were there other, was there more to his departure than just his not liking the song? Yeah, yeah, there were there were some issues going on with the uh, with the rest of the band, um, uh, probably particularly with uh, Paul Samuel Smith, the, the bass player. He sort of didn't quite uh, it didn't quite gel with Eric because uh, you know he was a bit of a snob. Paul, <laughs> I hope he didn't mind me saying that, but uh, you know he, he he his name was made up from Samuel and Smith. You know, so it sounded like very highfalutin yeah uh, but basically his mum didn't want to be called mrs smith so uh oh. so they put that put their names together his father and his mother samuel smith uh, and um so i i don't know his attitude clashed a bit with eric and uh, he, eric didn't like the way he sort of 
took it over and said, well, I, I've got an idea for Four Year Love and I'd like to use the harpsichord. And it, it, it was his idea, the way we recorded it. That song is fantastic. I, the harpsichord, the bongos, its it's got so many layers to it. Yes. It's just an amazing song. So no wonder it took off. It was Graham, Graham Goldman, um, who was a young composer, you know, Graham. Mm-hmm. Was C- yeah, and he was younger than we were, a couple of years younger. And uh, uh, he wrote some great songs, you know, he, he wrote the uh, Lord of the Hollies hits, Look Through Any Window and Bust Off. And, uh, a lot I still of have that 45, by the way. Oh. <laughs> I do. Oh, great, great. Yep. I was a throwback. I had older siblings. So even though I was born in 69, my the period, the musical period that I'm the most familiar with and the most comfortable with is the 60s and 70s, a little bit of 50s yes. as well. Yes. So what was your favorite album, one of the Zeppelin ones? Uh, of the Zeppelin ones? The obvious answer is the fourth album. That's kind of the meat and potatoes standard. And it's it's there's there's not a clinker on it. Um I also really love the third one. Yeah, yeah, so, they did some. They did some good stuff. They were they were a great band. Yes. Okay, before we before we get into that area though, Eric Clapton has left the Yardbirds. The Yardbirds are taking off. You guys must have thought, what in the hell do we do now? Uh, well, it was it was a bit like my father. You know, it was a bit of relief at the same time. <laughs> i wasn't expecting that (laughs) because there was you know there was obviously someone in the band that wasn't very happy with us and he was apart from us you know what i mean yeah and he was doing a moody sat in the corner Uh, and so it's it's very difficult when you're working you're trying to work as a team Uh, and and there he is sort of sitting in a mood all the time he's not talking to anybody um (laughs) so it was a relief you know and then uh it was Giorgio, actually, our manager, that came up with uh, suggesting um, Jeff Beck because uh, they'd seen him playing. He was playing in a band uh, called the Tridents, mm-hmm. and they'd been playing uh, locally to us in a place called Eel Pie Island, where we played also. And uh, Giorgio went down and, um, you know, more or less commanded him to, to come and audition. <laughs> Okay, see, the story I always heard was that you you went to Jimmy Page first or somebody within the organization went to Jimmy Page first and he's doing session work and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay with this. Why don't you go see Jeff Beck? So that's interesting. That, it, it, that That's not actually the way it went down. No, no, you're right. That 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 was right. That, that as well. It was uh, Jimmy that suggested him. Okay. But but the manager went down to to see him playing uh, uh, after he'd heard that from from Jimmy. Okay, so you see Jeff, you hear him play. Contrast him with Eric because their styles are very different. How how, how different? In, in what way would you say their styles are different? Um, <laughs> vastly different. Um. Well, Jeff has a huge variety of, uh, or had, unfortunately, yeah. he had a, a huge variety of of uh, style, and uh, he could play blues as well as Eric, but would play would play jazz and, and play, you know, what we say is psych, psych, psychedelic. You know, of course, it wasn't. It was just him, mm-hmm. and he could really play off the top of his head. And Eric had to sort of work it all out, you know. Same, same as Jimmy, that he he worked it, he worked it all out. But but he, Jeff was different. Yeah, I, I remember Alice Cooper one time saying that Eric Clapton was a great blues guitar player, Jimmy Page was a great rock and roll guitar player, but Jeff Beck was a great guitar player, and that he could just do so many things. And you've even said that you think you think of Jeff as the definitive Yardbirds guitarist. Yes, you do because he 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 took that he took all those songs and gave it that sound. And yeah. That sound that sound is what people remember of us. You know that that sort of crazy, crazy weird sound. <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and we did all those 
those great tracks, you know, the train kept a rolling and I'm a man and and uh, Misty or Better Man Than I, Heartless Soul, you know, they were all with Japs and yeah. they they were all they were all big hits. Well, it's interesting to me that the Yardbird sound is, is kind of known as psychedelic blues because you've only done acid one time and it did not go well. You, <laughs> you want to no, tell me that story? No, I don't. Okay. All right. No, no well, we, we, we played for the fun. You know, we, we tried to make the music different. Yeah. And we were enjoying the music. And, um, of course, we got involved with all the, the acid heads because they loved it. They loved yeah. all that. Loved all that. And playing in San Francisco and meeting, um, you know, uh, what what's his name Owsley? Owsley Stanley the Third, <laughs> who gave you a whole load of pills in your hand. And what what are the, what are these? You know, and you just took them like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> well, wasn't he the sound engineer for the Grateful Dead? Because that should have been a tip off. Maybe maybe don't <laughs> don't take that. <laughs> well, yeah, and then I heard after he used to make all the acid himself. Mm-hmm. And he made all the acid in California or something at one time. So, uh, yeah, I think his nickname was the Acid King. It, it, he and, was he was something. But I mean, thing, yeah, I mean the thing is with that stuff, you don't know how it's going to turn out. It's not like having a pint of beer or something. Yeah, it, it could go anyway, and you can, depending on where you are, you can sort of flip out. You know, right. And, and on a serious note, it really did kick off a case of clinical depression for you that you dealt with yeah, for yeah, yeah. a long time. Yes, I, I, I was quite ill for a while. Yeah, and uh, I, I got to a point where I couldn't even play. Mm-hmm. I had no sort of willpower. No, I didn't want to go and play. I didn't, just wanted to stay in the house, you know. Uh, but but fortunately, that that wore off and got better. And also, I I got into the, the the aspect of healing, you know, the thought of, uh, and I used to go to places where I'd, I'd get healing, and uh, and I could see it was working, mm-hmm. and that's where I learnt about those sort of things as well. Okay, so we're now in the period where Jeff Beck is in the band, but Jimmy Page is also coming in the band because Paul Samuel Smith quits, and yeah. Jimmy Page comes in on bass guitar. That's how desperate he is to get in the band. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. It was quite a change. I, I remember talking to Jeff on the telephone and he said, oh, we, well, we have to get Jimmy in now. And the next thing I, I knew, Jimmy was in the band. He was going to take over for, for Paul or bass. Uh, so he was pretty, he was pretty ready to, to join <laughs> us. <laughs> how, how long did he play bass? Uh, oh, only a few months. Because Chris uh, switched over to bass. Yeah, Chris switched over with him because it seemed silly. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy played bass and Chris playing guitar. So they they ended up both playing guitar, lead guitar, Jeff and Jimmy. What was that dynamic like? Because I, I know what it sounds like to listen to them and to see them, but what was it like working with these two guys both playing lead guitar? And I imagine there's some ego there. Yes, it was quite hectic. Uh, it was, uh, they were trying to outdo each other, uh, you know, in a very subtle way. And they're very different personalities because Jeff, Jeff was very wired, you know, one of his albums. Uh, and uh, <laughs> he, he plays off the top of his head. He's very nervous. He's, he's very in the moment. Where, where uh, Jimmy is very calm and he's, he's, mm. he's worked out what he's going to play and he knows like a section man his part, you know, what he's going to do. And uh, so uh, they they were so different. And, and, and Jimmy was always going to win because he was so calm, you know. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that, that's, an, that's an interesting thing to hear. I mean, not that part because you can, any anytime you see him in interviews and, and there aren't very many, from the 70s he is so quiet he is so calm that part doesn't surprise me the part that when you said that he works out what he wants to play meticulously you know I think of Led Zeppelin on stage in concert and and there was so much improvisation that 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 does surprise me 
Yeah, I think well, I think he changed after us. I think he did develop that that style a lot more. Yeah. Okay. Well, Definitely. so I have the DVD of Blow Up and the movie Blow Up from 1966. And I've only seen the film once, but the scene where the Yardbirds are playing, I think I have seen 18 million thousand times. <laughs> and, and it is how how did you come about being in that film? Um, well, well, we changed managers. We we went from Giorgio Kamalski, who was a bad, crazy manager. And we, <laughs> we we never made any money. You know, we had a lot of ideas, and uh, I mean, he was responsible for a lot of things we did, a lot of great things we did. But uh, we, we were a hit band, and we we weren't seeing any money, so. Mm. So we we found this manager Simon Napier Bell, who was involved in in much more in the movie business. He sort of knew he had contacts with uh, Antonioni, the the director, mm-hmm. uh, and they were looking for a band. I I heard they were looking for the Who originally because they, you know, they wanted to. He liked to the smashing of the instruments. <laughs> that was what I heard too. So I always wondered, well, is that why Jeff Beck smashes his guitar in that scene? Yeah, that's right. So it, it was quite unnatural for Jeff in a way, although Jeff would do it, but but purposefully, you know. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Jeff would do it anyway in his temper, but uh, not really on stage, not so much. Okay. Let's talk about Keith Ralph, the Yardbirds lead singer. I have read that he made a big impression on you when you first met, and you indicated in your book that there was something kind of Brian Jones about him. And when I read that, I thought, yes, that's exactly right. He has that Brian Jones look, or he had that Brian Jones look, but you went further than that. You said, um, Keith also had a haunted look and a frailty that immediately grabbed my attention. And like me, he suffered badly from asthma. What was your relationship like with Keith? Um, well, yes, exactly right. He was very vulnerable. Mm. Uh, and uh, and he had the asthma the same as me. And we, we sort of were similar in a way. We we both were a bit vulnerable, uh, especially on the road. And mm. we used to get it, just get into... Um, talking about spiritual things you know uh, flying saucers and <laughs> <laughs> you know the, the Tibetan book of the dead and all this sort of stuff and we used to smoke smoke about a pot you know <laughs> and, and have like Buddhist candles because we used yeah. to share a room and uh, and we'd take a, a, a take a record player around with us you know the old-fashioned record player and we'd play records play vinyls in the room <laughs> that's great I love that yeah we we got on really well together we'd be chatting and talking all the time and it was a way out we had a way out of all the stress you know because it was very stressful traveling and playing somewhere every night and it was hard work Mm. so he was the first person that she could really talk to about these kinds of things yeah yeah really and we 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 talked very deeply as well Mm. so and funny enough, uh, one of his sons is just like him. He is this the his... one that helped you build the studio in your house? No, no, not him. The other one. Ah, yeah, the other one is. He's a very uh, sp- spiritual and very gentle and very soft. Oh. Very, very similar to uh, to Keith in that yeah. respect. Wow. So the two of you kind of put your your interest in lyrics. In some of the music, like I'm thinking specifically of Happenings 10 Years Time Ago, that was a song that you worked on lyrics with Keith, and, and, and it's kind of about reincarnation. A, a lot of people seem to think it's a drug song, but it, it really doesn't have anything to do with that. And I'm just going to read a few lyrics here. Meeting people on my way, seemingly I've known one day, familiarity of things that my dreaming always brings, Happenings 10 Years Time Ago. It seems to me I've been here before. The sounds I heard and the sights I saw. Was it real? Was it in my dreams? I need to know what it all means. Happenings 10 years time ago. I love that song. That is my favorite <laughs> Yardbird song. It is. And I and I oh, say that good. way before I ever knew that the two of you did the lyrics. I love oh, that, that song. That's interesting. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I, I like it a lot. But of course, it was beyond its before its time, mm -hmm. so it wasn't really a big hit. But it was uh, like a, you know, like a classic uh, psychedelic song, as they say. So yeah, it came out in '66, and the Summer of Love, of course, is the next year. Sergeant Pepper comes out the next year. So absolutely, it was ahead of its time because it definitely has that feel. Like boy, it would have fit in great at that point. But yeah, I can see how it might might have been a little bit jarring for people at in 1966. But hey, it became a Yardbirds classic. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think I think it's one of the best ones as well. You know. Yeah, I really do. That that shapes the things. Yes. Now, isn't Happenings Ten Years Time Ago the only single that Jeff and Jimmy both played on? Yeah. Mm. Yes. And uh, we were, you know, in the book, as I said, Keith and I got the song together, and we had the tune and and uh, all the lyrics, and then um, when when uh, Jeff and Jimmy came into the picture, they suddenly. Uh, and John Paul Jones played the bass on that track. What? <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. And so suddenly it, be, it turned into something else, you know what I mean? Oh, my it gosh, turned, I did not know that. It turned into this real sort of rock classic because Jimmy doing that, 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 that sort of riff and Jeff doing these crazy solos all the way through. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Who did the da-na-na-na-na-na uh, part? Oh, uh, Jeff, Jeff. Jeff. Okay. All right, that's the crazy part. All right. <laughs> so, Jim, what shocked me in the book was that you and Keith really never talked with Jimmy Page about your interest in the paranormal, your interest in, I'll even say the occult. And I thought, you know, I was dying to ask you about that because I just knew that you'd had these deep conversations with Jimmy Page about it because everybody knows he was way into that. He he owned Aleister Crowley's house, Boleskine House, which I've been to. And he had a, a bookstore, Equinox, that was an occult bookstore. And I couldn't imagine that you guys never had a conversation about this. Why do you think he kept mom about his interest while he was in I the other birds? I don't, I don't know. It's very strange, isn't it? He, he just kept it very uh, on, on a business level all the time. It was just music and uh um, we we had a laugh, you know. We used to laugh around and and uh, joke, joke about uh, uh, quite a lot with Jimmy, but he never really went into all that occult stuff with us. Do you think that was? Do you think it was because it was a new interest for him, or he just was not going to talk about it? I, I I'm not sure. I, I think uh, I think maybe maybe he didn't he didn't want us to know about it. Maybe it was something he you know he thought we wouldn't like or something. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Okay. Well, going beyond that and going beyond the music and what were your impressions of him as, as a person? What, what kind of interactions did you have with him beyond just being on stage or in the studio? It, well, it was very, very easy to work with actually. It was very professional and, uh, you know, coming from uh, the session man yeah. approach, he wanted to do the right thing. He wanted to sort of please us, you know. He wanted to play what we wanted. Uh, and uh, he was very gentle and easygoing. <laughs> there, was, there was really no problem with him. Okay. Good to know. So going back to the paranormal, I love the section in your book where you talk about all the bookstores in London that you and, and Keith used to frequent. Because yes. I, I gather that it was it was a little difficult to get good books on this subject at that time, pretty much yeah. anywhere. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. There, there was only a few a few shops that had that stuff. Um, in fact, Watkins, the main shop, is actually still going. I've been there. <laughs> Have you been there? Yeah, yes. Great, that is it called? Is it called Cecil Court or Cecil Court? Where it is? Yeah, yeah, Cecil Court. That. That little enclave is fantastic. There's so <laughs> many bookstores there. But yes, I have been to Watkins. Oh yeah, great. Yeah, oh, fantastic. Oh, so yeah. you've done all the you've done the tour. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> and and I've I've been to Atlantis too. You talked about Atlantis bookstore, the the oldest occult bookstore in London, and yes. I was there in 2018, and met Geraldine, 
who, you know, her family owned that store. It's, they've always oh, owned yeah. it. And her yeah. daughter, Valley, was there. In fact, I have this picture. I wanted to show you, but now, I mean, I can't get my screen to share. But I have a picture of the three of us together that I pulled up. It's like, I'm going to show him that. But yeah, I met them in 2018. Oh, great. Yeah, oh. yeah. And they were lovely. They were just sweet women. I bought an Alistair Crowley book there when I was. Oh, you did. How interesting. <laughs> <laughs> So that was fun reading about all that in your book. Yeah, I, I remember. I remember Jimmy did go on about um, some uh, organization that, that that worked with flying saucers. I remember that Jimmy he did. Said, yeah, I said yeah. he said, "Oh, I know, I know someone that's uh, that that's very high up in this sort of flying saucer uh, place. You should go and talk to him." And I remember going. Going to talk to him somewhere or other. Okay. Uh, talking about talking about all the all the incidents of flying saucers around England. <laughs> wow. So he, I remember he put me onto that. Okay. So there was there was some discourse though, not much. Yeah. yeah. All right. So uh, all through this exploration that you've you've been engaging in of the paranormal, supernatural, UFOs, you really hadn't had any direct experience with the supernatural until the mid 70s and then there there were two occurrences where you had what you call objective experience of the supernatural and one of them was really benign and the other not so much what was what was going on there my wife and i had an argument we were arguing and suddenly there was this big bang at the door you know and it was so so weird it was like i was you know stop it immediately (laughs) <laughs> and that, because my wife my first wife Angela we used to we used to be into all that stuff mm-hmm. uh, and uh, we used to talk about healing and uh and you know visitations and all that sort of right. thing uh, and then um yeah one night I, I woke up and I saw this sort of face suddenly appearing and I, I thought oh I don't know I don't know what's happening here this is a bit odd Yes, but I still don't know what that was, but it, it it was it was pleasant, you know. It was it was nice. Okay. Uh, after the initial fear of of what was going on, because it was like very out of the ordinary. Yeah. Well, the the other thing in the book that I thought was pretty spooky, because that that sounded spooky to me, but it involved your last meeting with Keith, and in fact, he was not in a good place at that time and he had he had seen I think you said a clairvoyant a few months before the last time you saw him who'd given him a pretty dismal picture of his future do you remember what he told you about that uh I I I don't I know he was he he was in a a very strange place because he was separated from his wife and he was looking after his two sons and he was living in a very strange sort of a very odd odd sort of apartment and uh, he met some guy that must have given him some sort of drugs or something. I don't, I don't know. He didn't say that was the, that was the last night I saw him, and uh, it was all very odd. And I just felt this feeling every time I was with him. I was like exhausted. Mm-hmm. It was like he was sucking all my energy out. You know what I mean? It was very odd. Yeah. It well in the book you write that the clairvoyant actually told him that when she saw his future all she saw was a black hole and oh yes could, that's yeah right. I thought, oh, oh yeah, my man. god yeah horrible yeah poor guy poor guy well as much as you're comfortable tell me what happened with him you you saw him that last day had that eerie feeling and you write in the book that it, it lifted as soon as you got in the car and then your mom called you the next day to tell you he had he had died. What happened? Yes, yes. My mother used to work in the police station. She was a telephonist. Uh, like a telephonist would put the phones, would connect the phone to a switchboard. You know, somebody rang up. If you rang up the police station, you get my mum, you know. Oh, wow. And you say, oh, can I speak to, you know, chief inspector, whoever. She put them through. Uh, so, yeah, she was a telephonist. And she, of course, she... Uh, working in the police station she heard firsthand you know from a 
uh, the police had been round to his house and he and he was dead. Ugh. And uh, so she she called me up and told me, and that was the next day. And he got electrocuted from and an yeah, ungrounded yeah. guitar. Yeah, that's right. He was he he'd uh, he'd apparently put his guitar through an old Moog synthesizer and hadn't hadn't wired it into the wall properly. He hadn't put a plug on. He just put matchsticks in the in the the, the holes, you know. Oh my goodness! And uh, yeah, he, he got a belt. This God. is all. This is this is all apparent, you know. I don't know. No, I, nobody really knows. Yeah, but only thirty three years old. Thirty two, thirty three years old. Yeah, yeah, it was tragic. Yeah, and you know it's really sad. And you you kind of touch on this in the book that. He didn't get the fame that was later coming with the Yardbirds. Like you guys were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1992. Yeah, that's right. If he just stayed alive, he would yeah. have. Uh, he would have reaped all the benefit of all that. You know. Yeah. Well, what a tragic ending for somebody who was so talented on not just a vocalist and lyricist, but. His harmonica playing was fantastic. Oh yeah, he was a he was a great musician, and he always went for it. He always wanted to do a great show, and and uh, he, he did. You know, he was really good on stage. Yeah, well, you can tell that great. in the videos, in the in, yeah, you know, in the films. Good. Yeah. Okay, let's let's shift gears and move forward. The Yardbirds have ended, and. You meet your wife, Lizzie. Let, let's move into that period of your story because it's it's Lizzie and her passing and, and the grief that you experienced that inspired the book, She Walks in Beauty. And, and also what inspired it is your search for these answers to the mysteries of life and beyond. Mm. So the title obviously comes from the Lord Byron poem, She Walks in Beauty. And I love this part in the book where after your your mom died, you put music to that poem to play at her funeral because yeah. it was one yeah. of her favorite poems, your favorite poem, Lizzie's favorite poem. And so that's and you mentioned threads a lot in the book. And I thought that was a beautiful thread kind of tying you all together. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? It, mm. it, it was a lovely, lovely, lovely poem. And uh, I, I did this work. Um, called Gothic Dream that was all uh, it was based on um, making songs of these po- uh, famous poems by mm. the Gothic Gothic po- poets you know mm. uh, uh, Lord Byron uh, and uh, you know Keats and Edgar Allan Poe and all that yeah. uh, and it was really nice and actually um, I- I've been talking to someone it might it might get re- released properly again which is which is great because it was a great it was a great work you know it was, it was good fun how and when did you meet lizzie uh well i met her in the in the mid 90s um and i, I was you know I, I wasn't married anymore and i sort of had various girlfriends but I, I was sort of a bit a little bit lost um and um I used to go down to this, um, I, I suppose it's a sort of a healing centre uh, down in Malvern in, in Worcestershire in the West Country of England. And it was like an alternative uh, centre and they mm-hmm. had uh, alternative spa there and, and a hotel and they used to have uh, workshops and talks on things, you know, um, uh, and it was run basically by four families that that lived there, uh, and it was very interesting. It was called Runnings Park, mm. and uh, uh, I got friendly with one of the one of the people that lived there uh, on the musical uh, front. You know, he was another musician, David, and uh, Lizzie used to go there to relax because she was uh, she was part of a um, an art gallery in in in, uh, in London. She, she used to be a director of an art gallery, the Lister Gallery, mm. uh, in in the West End of London. And she used to, you know, let off steam down there in the in the spa. <laughs> <laughs> well, I read that you met in a channeling class. 
Yes, yeah, so we started channeling. Exactly, we 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 were both interested in um, in in channeling, you know, for different uh, spiritual entities or whatever, for, uh, and all that sort of thing. And um, tell me what that is. So so we, well, it's just a way of connecting, uh, connecting with spirit. Because um, we all have um, we all have spirit guides, all of us. And they're all they're all around us, and um, it's just that you can learn a way of connecting to them. Uh, and I, I've I've done this a lot now since Lizzie passed because I yeah. wanted to connect to her. So yeah. I, I decided to to study, and then I I studied with a um, a famous medium called Suzanne Giesman, uh, who's uh, American. She's down where you are. She's South Carolina. Uh, yeah, that's right. And yeah. um, she's she's great. And um, so I did all the classes and I learned how to do it. <laughs> Let's back up a little bit. The two of you get married in 2005. And she, I mean, it looked like you had this wonderful life together. You were going on these Buddhist pilgrimages, traveling, doing all of these things. And then in August 2018, everything sort of comes to a screeching halt, and you get this diagnosis. Everything changes. Yeah. Yes. Tell me. Tell me about that. Yeah, it, it was very difficult because we came to France and we loved it, and uh, we came to Provence, which is a lovely part of France. You know, yes, it a, is. And beautiful countryside and mountains and. Uh, everything and we loved it and we had a we had a great life together and um it it was like classic (laughs) yeah and uh and then she she got the she got the cancer and I looked after and and she passed in the house um uh, and it was really it was really tragic and it it really hit me you know it's a real uh a real shock I'd I'd sort of believed in those sort of things where I'd never been forced to believe it I'd, I'd never been hit in the face put by it before and I thought well she must be <laughs> she must be somewhere and um so I decided to find out where she was uh, and, and I was very pleased you know after the work I'd done I managed to I, I get a lot of evidence for, from her and uh um this was the thing that Suzanne always said oh, oh you know you need evidence as a medium yeah. You need hard, hard evidence that um, no one else would know. So I used to ask Lizzie, "Oh, tell me something I don't know about someone or other," and it, it would it would work out. And um, so mm-hmm. I, I really believe she's around all the time. Do you sense her presence? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah, I can feel her on the top of my head. Actually, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, not all the time, but now and then, you know, I can feel uh, here where, where, where my hair is. <laughs> that part of the book was was hard to read and very poignant. I mentioned to you in an email that I lost my husband to cancer in 2014. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. right. Yes. Yeah. And my mom died of cancer. We were very close. And I... Uh, there's so much of what you said in, in in dealing with your grief, in feeling the need to connect and, and doing all these things to make an effort to connect that I could really relate to. It's and, and I my my mother wasn't she died in my childhood home. My husband died in the house that I still live in, this house right here. Hmm. And it was really it, you know, this is almost like a sacred place to me. Because of yeah. it's, it's interesting how people react differently. Like my father, when my stepmother died, couldn't get out of that house fast enough. He did not want to be there. And, yeah. and this is a sanctuary for me. So it yeah. sounds like it kind of was for you too. Yeah, it is for me. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I like it here. I still feel her around. But it's nice. It's reassuring. She was a very reassuring person. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I, I like it. I like that uh, energy. Well, she sounded from your description like she was just a lovely person. You said she was very optimistic and yeah. kind of had this positivity about her. Yes, 
Yes, we, and we really clicked. We really loved her beauty. You know, she was from an art background and she liked, uh, you know, modern art and she loved the beauty of the countryside. And, yeah. you know, going out to walking here is, is lovely and there's a lot of beauty around here. Uh, and we, we really clicked on that. Yeah. I can't imagine going through that during a pandemic. Oh, she oh, was yeah. sick and well I mean she she died during the pandemic at at the very beginning I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. How did you navigate that? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know how I did it. You know, I don't know um there was some there was something helping me and I've no idea what happened because um yeah, we were all closed off and shut off and I I couldn't get away from it. Um, but then I, I found out all these ways of doing it, you mm-hmm. know, and I became very interested in in uh, uh, near near death experiences and and all that stuff. And I, I still am. It's yeah. a fascinating, fascinating study, you know. Mm-hmm. It's all and it's all very similar because there's no, um, you know, no uh, there's nothing horrible about dying. It seems like it's a uh, everyone goes to a beautiful place. It's like a, uh, for, from what I gather from all the um, from all the evidence from people, it's it's all very similar. It's all very lovely, and you know this is where it's hard <laughs> where, yeah. where we are. Well, I'm glad that you have been able to feel a sense of connection, and and then of course you mentioned Jeff Beck. You know we lost him in um, January 2023 and and Top Topham also died in 2023 so in January 2023 so it's a lot of loss here lately yes so yes I know it was it was very uh, it was hard I, I knew Top was suffering because he had dementia mm. uh, but uh, it was a big shock with Jeff because it right. was right out of, out of the blue and I mean he was relatively healthy you know and all of a sudden um he got the meningitis but he was he, i think he when he was with us in the 60s uh he went into hospital in in france with suspected meningitis oh which is odd and yeah he, and it wasn't meningitis apparently but i don't know hmm. i don't know whether there was any connection with that that's interesting. And and how is Chris doing? I read that he had a couple of strokes. Yeah, he's not very well either. Oh. I think he's got he's got dementia as well. Oh no. So uh, I mean Jimmy's fine. I I hear from him quite a lot. Do you? He's uh, he's okay. Um, <laughs> he looks pretty good. He looks like he's doing well, yeah. Yeah, he's okay. And Paul Samuel Smith's all right. So three of us are all right. <laughs> and and Simon Napier Bell, I think, is living in Thailand now. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's good. I think he was. Uh, he wanted to direct some uh, t- TV program or something uh, that he wanted us to be involved in. So, Jim, this has been magical for me. It it really has. Thank you for writing the book. Thank you for all of the years of amazing music. And thank you for coming on the podcast. It's it's just it's wonderful. I appreciate it. Oh, good, good, because I nearly missed it. I, I on your, <laughs> you know, the message. I nearly missed the message. It's all good. We've got what have you got going on now that you want to tell listeners about? Uh, I, you know, the last album, uh, Walking in the Wildland. That that's coming out again. That's coming out on Demon. Okay. Actually, this month, the end of this month. Okay, great. And I might there might be a song about Lizzie on there as well. Mm. So keep 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 uh, watch your space. I'll do it. And everybody, keep up with Jim at his website jamesmccarty.com, where you can find all his social media links as well. Thank you so much. This has been okay. wonderful. Oh, great. Okay, Christy, my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in, lit listeners. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and comment on Good Pods and Apple Podcasts. Links in the show notes. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I really appreciate your support. 
Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of Rock is Lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests who will offer commentary on the music or musical events featured in these novels. Until next time, keep rocking and reading and getting lit. Rock is Lit! It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.